Welcome to Tips from the Server Room. This podcast is designed for all you systems admins, network specialists, or the guys and gals out there in the office who handles it all. Sit back, relax, grab a beverage, and enjoy Tips from the Server Room. Hey, yes, welcome back, everybody, once again to Tips from the Server Room. This is episode number 135 for May the 19th, 2018. I'm your host, Jack. I'm going to guide you through the world of systems administration, network administrations, and all fields of IT. Please check out my website if you have the opportunity to do so, and many of you are, and I am getting a few comments, uh, which I'm going to talk about one of those uh, on this particular show. But you can uh, comment on these shows at tipsfromtheserverroom.com. And if you have any questions or ideas for future shows, please email me at jackstechcorner at gmail.com or jack at tipsfromtheserverroom.com. You can also follow me on Twitter and is at technoman. This show today will be recorded as a video uh, vidcast also, and I post that video at 4-2-Technoman, or you can search Jack's Tech Corner on YouTube, and you will find both of those. Um, either one of those should lead you to the same place. You can also watch the video at tipsfromtheserverroom.com. Just click on videos on the top of the screen, and they're all in there in the order that they've been recorded. So it's just a nice way. I wanted to put that up there to give you an easy way to find the video content. Today I thought we would talk about something that we've been working on uh, in the office and trying to get our heads wrapped around it. Because, you know, oh, how long ago has it been now? Um, probably I've been listening to this probably for 10 years, at least, minimum of 10 years. We have been talking about virtual machines and virtualizing. And I told you before that I met a gentleman at a conference one time. We went to a, a VMware conference at one time. And I was, uh, you know, I tried to talk to different people. And I talked to one gentleman. And he said, oh, virtualizing machines. I would never virtualize my machines. And I said, why not? He goes, well, because then all your eggs are in one basket. And we're going to talk about how to uh, make that basket a little bit more elaborate uh, there will be a little bit more overhead, but if you look at the physical machines and how many physical servers you need, the cost is probably cheaper in the long run. So it's something we need to think about. But he he said he wanted each server to be on its own physical machine because then he knows if a server goes down, he can just simply reboot that machine. And that is true because I've often told people when you have virtual machines, when you're virtualizing your environment – you know, okay, we know where the virtual machine lives, but it's something we can't see, right? We restart it, we interact with it through a software interface. And either using Hyper-V or everybody knows on this show that I'm a big VMware uh, fan. I've been doing VMware for years. And, um, you know, I've always enjoyed using VMware uh, ESXi or it's called vSphere something now. But um it's just very uh, easy for me to understand because I've been using it for so long. But either variety, whatever you're using to virtualize is fine as long as you're virtualizing. But he did not believe in that. But today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what happens if you have a physical machine 
and you want to virtualize it. You know, and there's a lot of different ways you can do do this. And probably years ago, the way we did it was we would spin up a new machine on a on a VM, a virtual machine, and uh, convert all the settings. Or you know, uh, you would do something to uh, migrate that in that old server into that. But there's such easier ways today, folks, where it's it's less time consuming, uh, it's less stressful for you. And I think that's what we need to talk about is. How can we convert a physical machine into a virtual machine? I think that's very uh, important to be able to do that. What I'm talking about is a program called VM Converter. Now, if you've never used VM Converter, you know, uh, you may be doing things. You may be working harder and not smarter. If you're going to convert your physical machines to VMware, and this is very much a VMware um, component it's created by VMware, but it's called the VM Converter. And when I use this thing, it works very, very well. You just load it up on your workstation. So wherever you're sitting on the network, it doesn't matter. As long as you have administrative credentials to get into your servers, you're good to go. You would first bring up the program, and all you have to do is you have to tell it the server name or IP address. And you put in your credentials, you know, your username and your password. And what you're going to do is you're going to hit convert. And even if that physical machine is running, it doesn't matter. You don't have to stop it. You don't have to kick people off of it. What it does, it takes that physical machine, all the settings, all the user profile, whatever you have on that machine, uh, and it will make a VMware machine out of that. It is extremely useful, and it works extremely well. Now, it does take some time. This is not something where you're going to convert all your machines in one day. It's probably not going to happen. I typically like to bring up this program before I'm going to leave for the day, leave for the office, you know, and come home. And I'll set it up to pull one of my, my physical machines. When I do this, it works, you know, through the evening. By the time I come back in the morning, I have a folder that I keep, you know, on my hard drive. And I just named it VMs. And I just dump those VM machines in there. When I come back in the morning, the VM machine is now ready for me to move to my virtual environment. So then you can just simply fire up uh, VMware. And if you go into, I can't remember the exact command. Um, but if you go into your vSphere, your desktop client, and you click on the, um, the, there's a hard drive one there. So what I do is I go in there, you can make a folder. I just simply call it VMs, and I can just import that. Or you could just simply go to File, Import, grab that VM, and it will import that into your virtual environment. Once you do this, here's a couple key steps. Before you spin up that particular virtual machine on your network, make sure you down the physical machine. So there is going to be a little downtime. So I normally will do this on a weekend. Um, or I'll go in in the evenings, uh, like at six, because I know to schools, there's no, there's nobody really using the machines after six o'clock. You're pretty safe and work like six to midnight. But what I'll do then is I'll be able to shut down that physical machine, and then I spin up my virtual machine. Because when you spin it up, remember it's going to have all those settings, right? All your IP settings. It's going to have all of your, um, you know, if it's running, maybe that server's a DHCP server. Well, you don't want two DHCP servers fired up on the same network. 
But the big thing here is you don't want two identical IP addresses firing up on your same network because you know one of them are not going to get a network connection. So make sure you shut that virtual machine, I mean the physical machine, down before you do this. Now, if you've never thought you needed a virtualization, right, you never wanted to virtualize, you wanted to be like that gentleman told me, all the machines should be physical. Here's something to think about, is you need to go to that physical machine and go into your settings, or you could just simply, even if on a physical machine, even if you like bring up the task manager, on the task manager, look at the total RAM that's being used the total CPU processes that are being used, and your total network uh, that is being utilized on that particular server. What you're going to find out that most times that I've seen servers, it could be even lower than this, but most times on an active duty, active duty, on an active directory server with um, uh, DNS running and maybe with DHCP, let's say you're in a smaller situation, you probably will see that server getting about 10 to 15% utilization. Now, if you're using it for a file server, that can definitely go up some. Maybe you're up around 35% utilization. But what you're doing is you're not really tasking that physical box with, you know, you're leaving resources hang out there and they're not being used. This is where virtualization comes in. This is how you can sell virtualization to your organization, either your administration or your school or your board of directors or your CEO or CIO. I'm not sure if it's a CIO, they'll understand all this. But the servers are not being utilized up to what they can be utilized. And that's the key here. Now, what you want to do is, and I'm sure there's calculators out there on the internet, and I've never really used those. I'm kind of in that mindset where, you know, I've been doing it for so long. I know about how much memory you need to run these and you know how much cpu is going to be used off of each one of these servers so i can pretty much do it just uh from the knowledge of me doing it for so long but there are calculators out there that will tell you like vmware servers how much ram you're going to need you know what kind of cpus you're going to need um, and you know what kind of network backends you're going to need we can talk about those setups for probably days and we could probably argue those setups and you could probably have some good uh argument of points and, you know, we can just sit down and talk about that forever. But what you want to be sure is that you have enough RAM for each each virtual machine. And you want to make sure the CPU is going to be handle, handling that task of uh, that extra, you know, uh, servers running on that physical box. You also want to pay particular attention to your networking. Um, a lot of people miss this. And a lot of people, and it will work, don't get me wrong. So if you're doing this, it's okay. But when I set up a virtual machine or a virtual physical server, I like to have at least a minimum of four NICs in that server. And the reason is when I'm setting up a virtual machine, I would like, you know, it's my best practice to have each virtual machine have its own networking connection. I just think it's a lot cleaner. Now, VMware, as well as Hyper-V, does have what they call a virtual switch. So you can use one network card and the virtual switch, the software will do all of the switching inside your VMware. And it does work extremely well. We've done it in the past, but if I had my particular best, uh, like I said, best setup, 
and best practice for me, it's at least four NICs. Now, there has been times I've had four NICs and I've had eight virtual servers running. So each virtual server is using, you know, two virtual servers per every NIC. And again, that works very well because of the virtualization of the virtual switch inside that software. So there's many ways you can set this up. Don't ever think you're restrained to saying, look, I have a server sitting here. Um, a lot of people would tell me, Jack, I have a server sitting here that I bought in uh, 2000. Can I use it for a virtual server? Sure, but you're going to be under you know the restraints of that CPU at that time. So yeah, you can repurpose that server, but it's always better when you're going to start this and you're going to look into the future is if your servers aren't newer, then buy new servers. Even if your servers are newer, here's, here's the catch here. You would copy those physical machine, whatever that is, off of there. Make it into a VMware uh, machine, right? And, or a virtual machine. And then you're going to have to down that machine. You have to install ESXi. And then you would import that machine. So your users are going to be out of business. If you're doing something like that, make sure first we always talk about documentation. Document it, document it, document it. How am I going to do this? What's going to be each step along the way? And then once you document it, look back at it and say, look, is this going to be best, you know, best case? Is this going to make sense when I'm setting this thing up? Because you, then you have to worry about what happens if I get into a snag and I can't get this physical or this virtual server to fire up. Now I've formatted that hard drive. So there's ways around this, and one of the ways we found around it is, first of all, I told somebody this a few weeks ago, I've never loaded ESXi onto a hard drive. And the reason I don't do that is because it takes up that hard drive, right? It's going to boot to that hard drive. And even the smallest drive in the server can be used for something better than that. So what I do is, believe it or not, and I've been doing this for years, and you can argue it all you want. I usually take a flash drive, say a, a four gig, probably two gig would probably work for the software. I set the server up to boot from the USB port where that flash drive is plugged in. I plug it in the back. I load my ESXi up on that flash drive. And that's my boot device. Because all I need to do is get that bare minimum system on there. It's, it's not large. It boots very, very fast off a of flash drive. That's another thing. When you reboot that server, it's going to move extremely fast. And then I use my storage. You can use your onboard storage, and I'll tell you why you probably should not do that. But we have, we've used SAS drives on, you know, on a server, um, or even just regular, uh, you know, SATA drives is fine. And those are all used then at that point for your VMs. Then you'll have plenty of room to load up your VMs on those uh, internal hard drives. Is there a reason why you should not use internal hard drives? Sure, there is a reason. Because you're not going to get any of that failover, right? You're not going to be able to do any of the, um, what do they call that, the V-motion, when you're moving it from one server to another server. Because if the, if the actual data resides on that server and that server crashes, or you want to reboot it, you're going to take down all those physical servers, or all those virtual servers, excuse me. That is why the best case, best practice is to use a SAN. I'll always put a SAN in my rack, and if you can afford it, buy two. 
The reason you want to buy two again is simply redundancy. We like to have redundancy built into our server racks. That is why uh, devices such as like Microsoft Azure, AWS, and now Google has some kind of, I've seen they have a, a Google cloud-based server. This is why these uh, services are so nice because we don't have to worry about the hardware, right? We worry about the software side of getting everything running and getting everything operational. Those big companies worry about the hardware and the backups and, and you know, uh, moving your servers from one server to another without you having to really deal with all of that. But if you have two SANs in your rack, you would duplicate the one SAN to the, to the second SAN. So if you have VMware or Virtual Machine 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 on SAN 1, those exact virtual machines would be on SAN 2. The reason that is is for the vMotion, if it can't find the first SAN, it can still run your servers from the secondary SAN. It makes, very, it makes way practical sense to do that. And again, you're just building in redundancy. We also always want to have two physical servers to virtualize. So I don't want you know my software only running on one machine with those VMs. I want it running on two machines. Again, I'm just simply building in that redundancy. So if I have to shut down server A, server B, those VMware, right, with vSphere, and ESXi would know that server 1 is no longer available. Server 2 will pick up and those VMs will still be running. Even with vMotion, you can move servers from server 1 to server 2 or server 2 back to server 1. And when you're doing this, if everything's on a SAN, the user has no knowledge that you did that. They're just sitting at their computer working on their documents and doing their thing and saving their files and and you're in the rack back here making major changes, and they're not experiencing any difficulties whatsoever. So it's a big, big plus. But if you have those virtual machines on that physical box, you really can't move it. See, that's one of the big holdups, and that's one of the reasons we like to use a SAN uh, storage unit. Now, I do understand there's cheaper SANs out there uh, that people are using now, and I've seen one recently, um, believe it or not, on Facebook. There was a Facebook post that come across and there's a company making uh, like a personal cloud. Um, like I have a personal cloud here in the office that I use that I can reach from anywhere in the world with an internet connection. Well, they're making one that uh, you can actually run or load up virtual machines on it now. So it's pretty cool. And I haven't played with it, you know, because the cost is uh, to me a little extreme uh, for what they're selling it for. But it, there's something out there. There's something available for you to do what you want to do. The next thing that's going to sell this to your CEO or your organization or your administration, wherever you work, is the the way we can cut back on the cooling, the electricity consumption, uh, because we're not wasting power anymore. You know, at one time I worked at a school, we had 12 physical servers running, 12 physical boxes. And, you know, we had to worry about those boxes, about cleaning them, upgrading them, doing everything you need to do with this. You know, obviously the software you're going to upgrade all the time no matter where it's at. But we had to worry about maintaining 12 physical boxes. I was able to take that down to two physical boxes and one SAN. And I know I just told you you needed two SANs for redundancy. You know, budgeting is tight when you work for school districts, so we only had one SAN. But it worked out just fine. And we were able to move all of those physical servers into those two boxes. It was a huge cost savings for the school. It was a huge um, uh, workload 
our workload decreased, so it was a huge benefit for the technology department to be able to do this and actually save a lot of resources. Um, so that is about all I have for you to talk about with VMs and the way VMs work. Uh, basically, I'm sure you've heard of virtual machines. I'm sure you've used virtual machines. Uh, even on the computer I'm using to record this, you know, I record these on an the iMac. I have Parallels, which is a virtualization software for the Mac. And um, I'm running uh, two different, I'm running a Windows Server uh, virtual machine on here and a Windows 10 virtual machine. So I can fire those up whenever I need to do any testing or programming or whatever I'm doing with those particular machines. So it's very nice to learn it. It's very nice to have virtual machines. I can tell you, uh, I took a course recently on uh, ethical hacking. And through the course, the very first thing the gentleman said, and you know, I probably would have never did this on my own. It makes good sense though, was to buy an external hard drive. So I brought an external two terabyte hard drive. You plug it into the laptop. That way you can load up many, many more virtual machines and just fire them off that external drive. It's also a nice way for testing. You don't use up all your, you know, all your internal storage of the laptop. So it made perfectly good sense. The next thing I want to talk to you a little bit about here, see where we're at time. Yeah, we have enough time left to kind of discuss this a little bit. We are in the process uh, right now, well, we've been in the process actually for a couple of years, but um, of finding a great solution for managing all the computers on your network and not really managing because to manage the computers, uh, a lot of times my remote manager, remote management, I do now. I think I told you before, I use what's called Dameware, D-A-M-W-A-R-E. It's an inexpensive program for one or two techs. And uh, it, the only drawback that I see with it, I wish they would create a Mac version. Uh, it's only Windows, but you load it up on your Windows machine. And what's nice about it is I can log into the person's computer when they're logged into it, all right? Because we do have remote desktop, but you know how that works is when you log in, it takes over their session. It logs them out and logs you in. And I can't see what the user is experiencing. So I use Dameware. It works extremely well. It's very fast and allows me to flip across their multiple monitors just with the click of the mouse. But what we've been looking for now is, or looking for for a while, is a way to audit all the PCs on the network. Because folks, inventory is not something that anybody really likes to do. But, you know, it's more and more challenging uh, especially with schools more than business maybe. But it's more challenging now than ever before to make sure what person has what device. That's very important. But it's also important to know what devices are running on your network. I think that's very important. So I'm, I'm playing around a little bit with a program called Open Audit. I don't know if you use it. Maybe you can give me some of your experiences. You can email me back and let me know those. But Open Audit is just a, a free program it either runs on Windows or a Linux box, and it actually will go out and inventory your network for you. So like I said, I'm in the early stages, so I'm not going to tell you how it works, but I can tell you that it is available. And you know what? I'll throw a link in the show notes for that, as well as the VM converter if you're looking for that program. So you can just find it very, very easily. Now, again, this is a task that none of us want to do, but in schools uh, where students each have their own device, Sometimes they treat those devices like um, like our kids did, my daughter did at one time, uh, with books in a school. 
If a child loses a book, they normally will find a book laying around, maybe on a cafeteria table or whatever, and they'll just pick that book up and say that's theirs, right? And there's really no way to tell whose book is whose because a long time ago they quit putting those little stickers in the book with your name in it, and there's really no serial numbers on a book to register it to that child. But we do have serial numbers on computers and tag numbers that we can use to tell which child, which student has which computer. Because when there's so many computers around a school, and I've seen it happen, they come down to get some work done. We pull up their name on the inventory, and we look, and it's like, this isn't even your laptop. Whose laptop is this? And we also put their names. We put sticker names on the front, but a lot of times they peel those off. And that's usually a sure sign if the name is peeled off that it's probably not that student's laptop. So we're able to go, we flip it over, and we get the serial number off of it. We used to at one time in some schools and some businesses will put what they call an asset tag on there. Now, the asset tag, unless you're going to engrave it, is pretty worthless because if it's a sticker, people will also pull that sticker off. So that asset tag is gone. We like to use the actual barcoded serial number that's on those. And with Dell, we're using basically the service tag number. And what I did was, to make this really extremely easy, another tip that you might use, is we went on Amazon and we bought some wireless handheld scanners. And we found that those wireless handheld scanners, you don't need any programming or anything special. You can have an Excel spreadsheet open, and if you're in the, in the Excel cell, one of the cells, and you beep, you scan that. When you scan that, boop, the number goes right in to the spreadsheet. So, you know, because sometimes they're hard to see. Let's face it, guys and girls out there. As we get older, you know, you're picking up that laptop and you're trying to see that number and you're pulling it back. Sometimes I got to take a picture with my phone and blow it up to see it uh, because the print's so little. But if you scan it with that gun, boop, you got the number and it's in your in your uh, spreadsheet or database or wherever. And it works very, very well. And those scanners, we picked those up for maybe, I don't know, 15 bucks a piece. We bought a couple of them. So they work extremely well for that task. But now we could just, when the student comes in, we just beep, and it searches through the database, and boop, there they are. Well, Johnny Jr., what's your name? Oh, my name's uh, Fred Astaire. Fred Astaire, you're not Johnny Jr. Why do you have, you know, Fred Astaire's laptop? Why do you have Johnny Jr.'s laptop, Fred? And they're like, oh, I don't know. I just picked it. I thought it was mine. Yeah, well, it wasn't. So then they have to go out and find their laptop. So that's why we've been keeping a steady pace uh, with inventories uh, just to make sure. Or sometimes we'll find a laptop that's been uh, left maybe in the cafeteria or left in the library or it could be anywhere. And this can happen to you in business. You know, you're walking through the break room. Somebody left their laptop. Whose is that? And in business, we didn't have stickers on the laptops. You know, so you'd flip it over, beep, scan it, look in your database, and you'd find out that, you know, that's, again, maybe Johnny Jr.'s. Or, you know, Miss Sally or whoever works in your office. And then you can call that person up and say, hey, we found your laptop. You you were irresponsible. Um, so, you know, it's just a good way to do that. Now, we've also always kept and maintained uh, a software inventory. And not a lot of people do this. And that kind of bugged me. I took a job, I told you, for a while in a for-profit uh, company. And in that for-profit company, they had no clue how many uh, copies of Office 2007 they actually purchased. It was on everybody's computers, but they had no clue of how many they purchased. Uh, the guy told me that, well, the software just keeps loading and it keeps registering. And I said, and you keep being out of applying, uh, you know, compliance. And he said, well, nobody ever said that to me before. And I said, 
I'm telling you, you hired me to help you, you know, manage and, and be able to coordinate your computer systems. Part of it is the software. You know, you have to buy a license for each device. And I know Office 365 is different now. And I think Microsoft, when you buy it, you can put it on five of your own devices. I think that's the way it's written, right? Five of your own devices. But these companies are buying these things and they're putting them on five of the company devices. I don't know if that's as legal. I would really have to say it's not. Um, now, if that person, if you wanted to give a license to somebody and they pull on their work computer and maybe uh, a couple of their, I don't even know if that's legal. But anyway, irregardless, you have to keep track of the software that's on the computers. So when you're pulling audits down, we talked about open audit, and I'm looking to play with a little bit more. I did find one at work the other day, and I can't remember the name of it. But what it did was I clicked on the computer name, and I clicked on the software tab, and it told me every piece of software and what version it was on that computer. Again, that's another reason you want to audit software. Because we found the other day with Google Chrome, I don't know what the number was, but it updates itself normally automatically. So the person was telling me that they didn't have the update on their computer. Well, what we found out was if you never close Chrome and reopen it, it will not install it. You know, the update won't be there. So she's had Chrome open for maybe months. I don't know. And there was a button next to the update that said relaunch. She relaunched it. Boom. She had the new version, which is like dot 18 now or 21 or I don't know. It's a big, big number. And you always look at the last three digits. That's all you really need to be concerned with because the other rest of the long number is just that it's pretty static so always remember the last three numbers so but it did update it relaunched and it was fine but that's what's nice when you're auditing software is you can see what versions everybody's on what's on their on their computers and if they have and we got in a big discussion with this at a conference i was recently at if they have administrative access which we don't want everybody to have administrative access you have to be very careful of what they have installed on that computer, right? They may have spyware, some Trojan stuff on there. Um, I used to have a lady at one time. She was a secretary, wonderful woman. And at Christmas time, she wanted screensavers. It was snowflakes, and Christmas trees, and dancing bears. and So she would just download them and install those. So then we had to really look, and we took away her administrative rights. So she could not do that because I often tell people, and you know it, free software is not free there's a price to pay because the company writing the software has to make something uh, they're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart believe me they're just not doing that so make sure you get your software handled i know that is a huge task and it does take quite a long time to be able to get that software managed and make sure you're keeping track of your licenses uh, we have what's called in the school districts, they have what's called an ESS uh, agreement or an education software or something agreement. And Microsoft will tell us, though, it'll be right on there. You have 2,000 licenses for Microsoft Office or whatever, you know, we pay for that cap. And it keeps the count on there. So put that on your spreadsheet, put that in your database, put that on your uh, inventory program so you can maintain what computers have what licenses. On the flip side of that, if you're getting rid of a computer, and this is anybody, any business out there, anybody listening to this, you can you can get away from giving the computer to somebody with a copy of Windows on it. You can do that. I would elect not to do that. I've never, ever done that. What I do is I zero out the hard drive, and then I sell the hardware. 
The hardware is owned, right? You own the hardware. And we all know basically software is basically a service. We kind of rent it, the usage of it. Or you're buying it under the uh, under the understanding from the company that you're using it in your business. So if you're uh, ABC123 company and you buy 12 versions of Microsoft Office or 12 licenses, you load those on your 12 computers. Two years from now, you're going to sell those computers or donate them to charity or whatever you're going to do with it. It's not right for you to sell that computer, especially when people have these selling things on there. It comes with Microsoft Office 2016. That's not a selling point, folks. Take your software off. Uninstall that software and get that license back. Reload that software onto your new machine. A lot of people don't think about this. To make it easier, instead of uninstalling, installing software, uninstalling, we zero our computers out. And we just take everything off, and I tell them, you can download Linux for free. It'll work just fine. Uh, you know it will. For desktop, if there's a browser you can click on, and it gets on their wireless, they are good to go. So uh, most people we told use, uh, last year I think we were telling them to use um, uh, Linux Mint or Mint Linux, however you say it. I found it loaded extremely well, but then I see the new version of Ubuntu. Is uh, also loads very well. You know, there's there's icons. There's a browser. You click it. It loads uh, pretty much all the drivers, and uh, you know. But I think with the Mint Linux, just to throw that out there, I think it also loads the plugins. That was huge. You know, to load plugins and MP3 players and whatever. So, but there you go. That's my little rant on that. I hope you do take my advice and do that. Zero them out, and uh, you can get very free software. Is what we use. And it makes one pass on the hard drive. It writes ones and zeros across it. And most normal individuals out in the world are not going to get that data back ever. So there you have it. Folks, I want to thank you so much for listening to this show, downloading and subscribing um, very, very much. Uh, I did want to bring up, I did have a comment this week on the website. Uh, and I didn't get the name off of there. I should have did that earlier. But the gentleman was talking about uh, when I mentioned the... Um, um, the Wireshark, I'm sorry. Uh, I mentioned Wireshark. I put a link out there for it, you know, and he mentioned that, you know, he downloaded it and started using it to kind of view the network and expand the network and get a better understanding of what's going through his network. So he was very, very pleased with that. And, and thank you so much. I do enjoy getting those comments because I know then that people are listening to the show and paying attention to what's going on through the uh, through the podcast. Folks, thank you so much again for watching. Like I said, downloading and subscribing. If you buy anything from Amazon, please go to my website, tipsfromtheserverroom.com, where you can click on that Amazon link. You know, Put the things in your shopping cart, go to my site, click on that link, and then go purchase it. It doesn't cost you anything more, and a couple pennies will come back to the show. So that definitely helps out. Also, don't forget that Patreon uh, link. It's patreon.com slash jackstechcorner. You can go in there, and you can donate like a dollar a month. You know, for these shows, that's not a bad deal. Uh, it definitely helps me out here, uh, especially in the long run. It's going to be a big, big help. But don't forget, if you really want something, uh, I'm, I'm paying it forward, and you want something for your buck, right? Because Patreon's okay, but I don't know. Uh, you know, when you go out and you donate to somebody's podcast or their videos, you know, I get kind of upset with, you know, you're not getting anything for that, right? It's called a donation. You're, it's one way. But don't forget to go to jtclearning.com and sign up for that 2012 R2 course, Windows Server 2012 R2, because then you're getting something back. And the students I've talked to so far that's been in that course have told me 
most times if you work for a company, they reimburse you anyway. So they'll reimburse you for that, being able to take that course. When you're done, I will mail you a certificate in the mail, certificate of completion, and you can use that with resumes, maybe getting a promotion at work. Uh, maybe you just never you know, use server 2012, or maybe you want to upgrade your 20, 2008 R2 servers. So it's just a great way to learn, uh, very easy and very, very low key. Once you sign up, you're a member for life. So remember that. You're a member for life, and you can go back and watch those shows and watch those videos whenever you desire. Folks, I will talk to you next week. Take care, everybody. Have a great work week. So long from Tips from the Server Room. Bye-bye for now. You just listened to Tips from the Server Room with your host, Jack. If you have any questions, please drop me a comment at tipsfromtheserverroom.com. Thanks again for tuning in and downloading the shows. Now sit back, relax, and listen to the remainder of the music. We'll see you next week on Tips from the Server Room. So long.